Barley, stranger, danger, man, these niggas change up. Fuck a lame nigga, little baby, outrageous. Girl, I am the raddest. Got me calling Brad this. Bitches fucking said, and you are getting out your bag. I don't eat pork, I don't fuck hams. I got three uncles, so fuck Sam. I'm Mike Jack, I'm bad. Back the fuck up, bitch, I don't like rats. Me beast, that got that knock in it. Play it crazy, clock a bitch. Right upside that head, I pray she dead, I'm on the block. And what up though to all my niggas and may peace be upon you to the non-ones too. May peace be upon y'all and your ancestors and other spirits. My name is Taylor Amari Little. If you're not using that full name, then you call me Tay. I use she, her, and he, him pronouns. A black queer Muslim. I'm a conjure woman, energy healing service provider, energy mother, educator, and diviner working with dead people and other spirits and creatures for a living. This is Tay in the Water podcast. No, not because I'm in the water while I'm recording, but I mean water as in movement, as in the spiritual realm, as in balance, restoration, feelings, dreams, inner worlds, trying to keep a cool head in this ugly ass world, and incorporating, exploring all of these different things as life practice. That is Tay in the Water. Full of spirit talk, apocalypse commentary, conversations around being a diviner, hoodoo, Islam, blackness, and beyond. Now welcome, welcome to the podcast, and now we can go. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. We are starting this podcast today in the name of the divine. So first and foremost, though, let's give a nice ass shout out to Milfi for OTB slash On The Block, a song that you could find online on Spotify, all of them, you know. Um, she is a princess of bad bitch rap and ghetto tech based in Detroit, Michigan. I be playing her songs all day. They be having me going. Okay. So y'all need to look into her. Okay. Um, and also other Detroit artists cause y'all be missing out. Uh, secondly, secondly, my birthday passed since the last time I posted. And I know it's been a long ass time since I posted AKA like a month. This, uh, October 1st with me recording right now. I'm gonna probably post this tomorrow or the day after, but, um, yeah, my birthday passed. This is the last time I posted. So if you want to give me some money, you know, <laughs> I'm always accepting. But it was the middle of September uh, during the full moon in Pisces. And I went against every urge that I could. And I just rested like I could. I, I just rested. I was so proud of myself because I was a really huge deal. I slept in and I didn't do work the entire day. I didn't even check my email, which is huge because I'd be checking my emails like it's social media is really a problem, to be honest. Um, but also like as a person who manages different disabilities, like depression and PTSD and joint pains, when I'm not taking care of myself or getting enough rest, you know, those can flare up to much severe extents. And not to mention every reading I get, every time my spirits talk to me, they telling me to rest, you know, they telling me I'm not resting enough, that I deserve rest and I deserve stillness. And so it was a very beautiful day. Um, it was a very beautiful day, very different. Um, and I really know, I didn't really know what to expect from my spirits either. Like the day before it, I had just finished doing some intense ass work, focusing on the patriarchs of the lineages I come from consecutively too, for over a week. And I also knew that soon I would have to do some more work to, uh, like I would have to do some more work to do too. Um, and so I wasn't, I wasn't super sure like what would come up during my birthday time. 
Because I was like, I know, I know y'all got something planned. I know y'all got something planned. And they did. Um, my dreams was packed. You know, so many beautiful reclamations happened, realizations had that night and that morning. And I was very grateful. And so, you know, when I woke up, like I said, like, um, you know, I just took it slowly. I took it easy. I got dressed. I went up to the Chinese grocery store nearby and I got myself and my spirits some of our favorite foods. I took offerings to the river for them because it was that time of the month anyway. Um, and I avoided talking to many people, which was also a big part of me resting and conserving energy. And I had planned to go home to drop off my items, like my groceries and stuff like that. And then I wanted to take myself out to karaoke by myself. I was looking up all these rooms, you know, nearby, like karaoke rooms nearby. And like, I was just like ready to sing my little heart out, you know? Um, you know, last time I had been to karaoke was all the way back in high school in Japan, where they had decided to round up a few of the local study abroad students around our prefecture and go, but listen, I remember that when I got there, when we got there, I didn't even know them people, but I knew that I was trying, I was not trying to stop holding on to that goddamn microphone. You know, I did not want to let go. I did not want to let other people sing. I wanted to sing. I was Beyonce, girl. I was Beyonce. Even though like, you know, it wasn't about the singing skills. Okay. But it was about what I was letting out. Okay. That's what it was. Um, but yeah, I didn't want to let go. I didn't want to leave. Um, and I loved it so much. It was so, it, it brought so many feelings of excitement and, um, I don't know, just music is so sacred. And so it was just such a good time for me and I loved it so much. And I always thought about doing it again. Um, but never did after that. So I wanted to treat myself to finally going on my birthday, but girl, by the time I got back, I didn't even feel like it no more. So I was just, um, I was just like a little grandma, but I was like, also, it was fine. Like, it wasn't that huge of a deal. I didn't feel like sad that I didn't feel like going anymore. Um, it wasn't like anything wrong. I was just like, you know what will also be good? Staying in, staying home, like staying in my bed or, <laughs> or like just taking it easy, like the rest of the day and not going back outside. Um, yeah. And it was, it was fine. Um, but yeah, so that was my birthday. Uh, other updates with me was that I guess my ancestors, you know, they told me to go to church more. So that's been a thing. Um, and they've also been more on it in terms of making sure I'm catching my Islamic prayers. Child, they will wake me up in the middle of the night or early morning if I did them. Um, but once it's not that bad. But once a week, I do intentionally ask them to be my little waking alarm to pray. So that's good. Um, but it's really been beneficial for me for multiple reasons to make sure that I go at least, uh, to, to at least one service every week, whether it's church an SGI meeting, the mosque or somewhere else. Like it's been really good for me to keep myself sane and also active and aligned with what I need and aligned with God and my spirits. Now, the first official thing I want to talk about is, I think it was the last episode where I'd briefly mentioned Nichiren Buddhism. And then I know just now I kind of indirectly brought it up again in terms of like what I've been up to recently, mentioning SGI. Um, so if you ever decide to look into Nichiren Buddhism, you will without a doubt hear the term SGI, which stands for Soka Gakkai International. You'll see that. 
and you'll see the words nam myoho rengekyo which you might have heard or seen by celebrities like Tina Turner. Like she's a really good example to reference and even had um she even had her chanting mentioned in her movie which was real cute. Um and that's like how a lot of people or some people might know about Nam Myoho Rengekyo um like through that movie. So it was like some good exposure. But so like you might ask like you know what was she doing or what was she practicing? What's the history of it? Well, I'm going to explain right now, so it's fine. Um So Nichiren Buddhism is a lineage of Buddhism that derives from Nichiren Daishonin, who was born all the way in 1222 in Japan, studying the teachings of Shakyamuni Buddha, a.k.a. Siddhartha Gautama, uh, a.k.a. the person who came to be known as Buddha or like the enlightened one is what it means. So now Nichiren used to go around all over intensely studying Buddhist sutras and like the different schools of Buddhism. He was really about that life. He he was so about that life. He had been so desperately seeking to identify and understand like what was the heart of Buddhist doctrine. Like he was trying to understand that since he was fairly young. He first entered priesthood at like 16 years old. And um a little over 15 years later, he was lecturing again and he um was basically like he was basically like, "Hey, hey y'all, as y'all may know, I've been studying for a real long time, trying to truly understand Buddhism and understand human suffering, the source of it, how to work through it, all of that. And, you know, I'm here ready to tell y'all that I didn't reach the conclusion. And that was when Nichiren had told everybody that Buddhism's heart is the Lotus Sutra. Which also, if I'm not mistaken, somebody can correct me on this, but um, if I'm not mistaken, it often gets called like the final teaching um, that Shakyamuni Buddha had. And so Nichiren... He starts saying that the Lotus Sutra is what needs to be focused on and expanded on the most because this teaching alone is the one that has the potential to lead all people to enlightenment. It's capable of leading all people to enlightenment. And like he ended up coining the terminology nam myoho kyo as something to represent this truth that he had identified, which I'll explain in a, a little bit. And um, this was a really big deal. And he knew it too, because all the other priests from the other schools of Buddhism, well, they was mad as hell. Um, and their followers too. And they had a lot of followers. They had whole lot of schools, so, you know, um, and disciples and things like that. And they were all mad. And Nichiren started getting harassed and persecuted, especially because um, like some of who he had made mad also happened to be government officials. And so, you know, he was going around, he was teaching Nam Myoho Renge Kyo as a philosophy to so many other people. He gained disciples who assisted him as he was being persecuted. And for the next 30 years of his life before he died of natural causes, ain't nobody drop him, alhamdulillah, he made even more critiques of different Buddhist schools. And honestly, like, he would not quit, you know. He was, he was you know, he was on a run. Um, Well, he wasn't talking reckless. He was just trying to spread what he knew to be the truth, right? And it was easy for him to be attacked for it because he had less power compared to all these government entities who disagreed and felt threatened. And so Nichiren had his followers for years and years and years because, you know, that was the 13th century. And then close Closer to 1930, Tsunai Saburo, Makiguchi, and Josei Toda, they were both school teachers at this time who had really identified with Nichiren Buddhism to the point where it informed the educational reforms that they and like these other teachers who had agreed fought to bring about in society. 
and what these reforms were. So they they were child-centered and they valued independent critical thinking, like raising kids to have these values for critical thinking and for independence, as opposed to raising kids to just be like obedient subjects of the state who either couldn't or were too scared to think for themselves, which is actually what the government in Japan wanted at that time. And the group of people pushing for this, pushing for these reforms that Makaguchi and Toda were part of and like has started, it became known as Soka Kyoiku Gakai, Value Creating Education Society is what this means. Um, anyway, long story short, the government grew more and more strict and wanted to make sure everybody was practicing the Shinto religion if they weren't already and also supporting their war. Makaguchi and Toda, they openly like, Mm, no, like, we're not finna do that. Like, this, Nishiran Buddhism, okay, like, that's motivating our organization, our group. This is the way that we about to change society and promote social good through reforming our individual inner lives and actively engaging with each other more intentionally. So, you know, they were, they were both thrown in prison, um, because a militarist government is going to do what a militarist government is going to do. So they were both thrown in prison. Makaguchi died there after some years. Jose's Hoda was released in 1945, reconstructed the organization because like while they were in prison, though they did still have like um, people supporting them and things like that, like it kind of disbanded um, during those years because the leadership was shaky, you know, their leaders were in prison. Um, so when he got out though, he reconstructed the organization and later on it just became known as Soka Gakkai. And then Soka Gakkai International, or what we now know today, know today as SGI, um, with Daisaku Ikeda later becoming president of the organization too, starting in 1960. So Nichiren Buddhism has a really long history, right? It's been here for centuries with SGI having a pact but not as long history. And this context is important because it offers insight as to, you know, what types of people were engaging with this philosophy and why. And, you know, it helps us connect to who's practicing it now and why and like just what do these things mean, right? So now you know some history of the organization, but in terms of the ritualistic elements that active engagement element that Makaguchi and Toda were advocating so hard for is mainly the daily practice of chanting Daimoku and doing Gongyo. And Daimoku is the recitation of Namyoho Rengekyo, which I mentioned earlier was coined by Nichiren. It means dedication to the mystic law of the Lotus Sutra. So we're gonna break it down, we're gonna break it down. The literal meaning of the word Nam is respect or dedication or devotion. It's the word that encourages action. Myo expresses, it basically expresses that our life energy is waiting for the necessary circumstances before it can manifest or take on a physical form. For example, if you want to think of it like the conception of a baby. Ho means law or a phenomena and it describes that manifest state and basically that uh, emergence of the newborn baby into the new world, like if that metaphor works for you at all. It's also like the never-ending cycle of life and death in the world, the beginnings and the endings as one word, one cycle, that continues over and over again. Together, Myoho is usually referred to as the mystic law. Renge means lotus flower, 
what often gets talked about within SGI and Nichiren Buddhist traditions, aside from um, like what what developed into SGI, uh, is what is that what's unique about the lotus flower is that unlike many other flowers, it bears seeds at the same time that it blooms, instead of only one stage at a time. And like the fact that this lotus flower already contains seeds when it opens, it symbolizes that principle of the simultaneity of cause and effect. This idea that we are making causes in this world every day through our actions, our thoughts, our words, etc. And in this world, we immediately experience the effects of our thoughts, words, and deeds, whether we can physically see them or not, right? So it's just saying that, you know, whenever we put a cause into the world, saying something, doing something, whatever, there's already an effect of that that's manifesting. The word kyo at the end of Nam-myoho-renge-kyo means sutra or teaching. So it's a mark and reminder also that uh, the remind that excuse me that the vibration of our voice is highly important in this Buddhist practice, which is really different compared to how most people think all Buddhists are, like engaging in silent meditation or just really quiet practices, um, or isolated practices, which is true for some schools and traditions of Buddhism, but not all of them. Um, and Shakyamuni Buddha, aka Siddhartha, he has said that. Um, the voice does the Buddha, the Buddha's work. The voice does the enlightened one's work. And so with Nichiren's lineage, this is like why, this is why we chant Nam-myoho Renge-kyo out loud rather than performing a silent meditation. Kyo is also basically the interconnectedness of everything happening. So it's together, the meaning gets translated as dedication to the mystic law of the Lotus Sutra. So that is Daimoku, and Gongyo is just a recitation of two excerpts from the Lotus Sutra. And typically, people do Gongyo like twice a day, once in the morning, one uh, one in the uh, afternoon, and you could chant by yourself, you could chant with your family, friends, with the community, whatever you want. But it's really good to be able to chant with other people. It's powerful, um, and I actually think... I actually think what I'm going to do is post on the podcast something that's not quite a full episode, but instead is a practice or action episode for anybody who wants to try chanting Daimoku together. It'll probably be about like 10 to 15 minutes long total. So one thing every SGI member knows is that the beautiful thing about having once been active in SGI is that even if you go inactive for a while... Chanting Daimoku is just something you never forget. Like, it's never something that you forget. I actually had went a pretty long while without chanting or attending anything SGI related. I didn't feel the need to, especially with me having access to so many other forms of grounding and manifestation in my life. Um, but it didn't necessarily feel like a bad thing that uh, that that like or that I wasn't being compelled to go or like make time for it either. It just was what it was. Then, when I was in Austin a few months ago, excuse me, let me get some water. So, when I was in Austin a few months ago with Faith, we had this experience where we were at the library and, you know, we just be running our mouths, talking about uh, a whole bunch of shit, right? Bouncing from topic to topic while we were supposed to be doing some work. And we did do some work that day, but, you know... Could have been more, but, um, and I think we had gotten to uh, a conversation where we started talking about personal relationships that transcended this lifetime. So past life relationships. 
And, you know, we was just minding our business, but not with as much discretion as we should have, low-key. And, you know, all of a sudden, we, we hear this older man go, you believe in that? You believe in that? And me and me and Phrase, uh, me and Faith, excuse me, froze, and we, um, sorry if you hear that, that um, ringing in the background, it's just a, a clock, um, but like this tall ass um, clock tower. But anyway, so me and Faith, we had froze and we just stopped talking and we wasn't even looking at each other no more because we didn't know who this man was talking to, who said it and why. And, you know, we just be through with man. We just be like, oh, Lord, like, you know, here we go today. And then he had said it again. He had said it again. He was like, you know, you believe in that? Um, And finally, uh, I turned to look at him. And, you know, he was at a computer right across from mine with his little head poking out. And I said, believe in what? And he goes, reincarnation. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And I just, you know, I smile. And um, I think he had asked me, he had, I think he had asked me if I had ever heard of Nietzsche and Buddhism. And I forgot, I forgot what he said, but it was something like that. But whatever it was, it got me real excited because I asked him if uh, he was part of SGI and he said, yes. But he said it's so proud. He said it's so proud with his head held high. And that made my heart warm. It really did. And when we got, um, and after that, uh, we had gotten to a whole conversation about SGI, where I was visiting from, if I had been to the center in Austin. And I told him I hadn't been to a meeting or a center in a really long time. And he told me and Faith that we should come, we should go. He was standing up to leave and he was like, I'm actually heading to catch the bus for a meeting there right now. You all should come or or visit before you leave. And like, I just couldn't believe, you know, like what had just happened. Like, I couldn't believe that that had just happened. I felt so exhilarated and excited by the conversation. You know, it was bringing up so many things for me. Um, By the same time, like I could believe it at the same time. I was like, of course, of course, this will happen. You know, it's probably time to go back. And we didn't make it there for that day, um, but we did look online at the calendar and plan to go a few days later. But when we got there that Sunday, the center was actually closed. Um, another member had showed up confused too, and they had called and you know let us know that actually this was the only Sunday out of the month it would be closed. The center would be closed. But me and my friends, we ended up. What we did was we ended up just sitting down somewhere like close to it, surrounded by plants and chanting outside. And it wasn't the original plan, but it was still really good. And it brought back a lot of memories. And um, I spoke briefly on the last episode on this. But to repeat, SGI saved my life. When I was so sad and angry and lonely, uh, like in high school, like trying to, in the beginning of high school, trying to cope with all these different serious issues in my life, like, um, I would, like chanting was what gave me hope and it helped me see the results of my work. You know, it was working for me and I could see tangible results. Like it was a tool that I was blessed to acquire as a teen that helped me make what seemed like the impossible at the time possible. For me and like for a lot of other members, chancing Nam Yoho Renge Kyo is road clearing work, period. Um, 
Enchanting was also something that brought me community and it restored light to my life. My mama used to tell me, she used to be like, girl, y'all look like a happy cult. Um, and not because SGI and Nietzsche and Buddhism is about like never experiencing sadness and only experiencing happiness, but instead is being able to distinguish between relative happiness and absolute happiness and prioritizing our desire for the latter and, and for a revolution of the self and just trusting our ability uh, to like make that shit happen, whatever we need to happen. And another thing, too, about SGI that I loved was, like, having people chant for you, you know? Similar to, like, how we got prayer warriors in the FM or the African-American slash Negro community. You know, we got our prayer warriors, you know, praying for each other, like, uh, firmly, fiercely as hell. Um, That was also something that I saw in the SGI community and that made me happy, you know? Um, People checking in, asking, like, what do you need? I'm going to chant for you, like... We're going to do it right now. Let's chant together right now <laughs> for it to make sure that this thing happens for you. Um, another thing, too, is that, like, I love the vibrations that come when you're chanting with a large group. Like, sometimes I would just close my eyes while chanting, and it sounded and felt like music. And I would concentrate on my feet touching the ground because it felt like I could feel the vibrations of everyone's voices. Because everybody's voices would be booming. They really would. SGI also played a role in my journey with my seeing. Like while in uh while in Handashi Aichiken, Japan, I had found out that they literally just built the area's first SGI center, like less than a year prior. So it was new, it was pretty new. Um and I ended up getting connected with a member named Noriko, who was amazing, and we took a trip to the center. And I remember immediately, like, there was all these old ladies, these old little Japanese ladies who was running up to me to hug me and welcome me into the space as soon as we took our shoes off. And we ended up going to try to find a gohonzon, which is basically, um, like, a physical altar and representation of what you usually chant to. And they had me leading chanting for the first time. And I was nervous as hell because I was like, you know, I never did that before. I'm, I'm usually not, not all the way in the back, but I'm not leading the chanting. Um, but that was also the first time that I got really emotional and cried while chanting. And that was the first time that I remember catching visions while awake and being overwhelmed with spirit. Though, like, I didn't have the best language to describe and articulate that that was what was happening to me at the time. But it was just, it was intense. It was intense. Um, and so that definitely, like, played a part in my journey with my seeing, my relationship with my seeing. Um... And SGI back in the States, SGI back in the States was also, I want to say, like, the most racially and ethnically diverse spiritual community I had the opportunity to witness firsthand and experience. And, you know, I don't like, I usually don't like using that term diverse because of white people using that shit. Um, But it's like when you go to anything SGI related, you really ain't got no choice but to notice. Like, it's so funny. Like, it's like if you go to a meeting or community center you, you know, you go and that's like, uh, so by the way, the community centers is like what we had instead of like temples or churches. Um, but it's like when you go, you just want to stare because it's like, damn, how do y'all even know each other? How do y'all know each other? Like what? Like little 15 year old me was considering like, you know, 50 year old black women and 75 year old Japanese women and older black queer elders who I'd never met before. Um, like my friends, I found friendship and family there. Uh, like with with them and like other kids um, and a huge group 
I remember a huge group of the people of my district in particular, they came to surprise me at work one day. Um, and again, I was still in high school. And so just like these connections were like these connections that were outside of school that were in addition to like the friendships I had that were part of school, like that, it was really powerful for me. And we would dance together, you know, we hung out with the kids of the district together. And most importantly, we chanted together and we chanted for each other. And, um, yeah, Nichiren Buddhism is pretty different from other forms of Buddhism too. Like I remember learning that for real when I was in Honda, um, and me and my host, uh, my host sister, we might go visit like our grandparents after school and I would get so excited when I would see the altars that they had set up, but they look so different and, you know, it's easy for me to notice that. And, um, you know, they refer to them with different names, you know, other than a gohonzon, it was something else. And I loved it anyway, cause I just, I just love it. Um, and they would have me pray with them and like, you know, let me look at the literature that they carry next to it and all of that. Um, but it was different, you know, it was different. Um, like with a lot of forms of Buddhism, um, some might require, um, like belief in a God and like uplifting the Buddha or like, um, or not, or, but, and like this idea that this idea that, um, like you can't attain enlightenment until like after you, after you die. Um, and that like, basically like you should dedicate, uh, your life to making sure that you can attain that enlightenment in the end. Whereas Nichiren Buddhism, like, it's like, no, you can attain enlightenment. Like you can strive towards that every single day and like attain that, um, and like, like every day, um, basically. Uh, and so like, that's a really huge difference. Um, and Nichiren Buddhism, like it doesn't require a belief in a God necessarily. It requires belief and trust in the mystic law of the Lotus Sutra. It requires you to be in harmony with the universe, which you can also consider to be God or part of God, but like that's not an overall collective belief of the practice. Like it's just it's just something that can happen within the practice. So when you go to SGI community gatherings, it's likely that you'll find people who identify solely as Buddhists, as Jewish Buddhists, Christian Buddhists, Muslim Buddhists, Buddhists who also identify as witches, bruhexes, root workers, conjurers, etc. You can meet atheist Buddhists, like you can meet people from all walks of life there. You really can. And yeah, I'm I'm excited to, you know, keep returning to these future uh, meetings and like continuing to see old faces it's been really beautiful for me and it's really been a trip in a good way going back to these meetings too so SGI now exists in 192 countries and in the USA alone like SGI has more than 500 chapters and 100 centers. So if after all of this, any of y'all get interested in going to a meeting or visiting your center anytime in the future, just know that you probably got one nearby and just don't know it. And I encourage y'all to try it out just to, just to see like, you know, if you, if you like it. So, um, yeah. And, you know, feel free to like reach out if you need help, like getting connected with anybody, um, because the thing is, is that once you're part of SGI or like once you're interested, everybody know everybody. So like it's big, but it's also not. Um, and everybody got a connection because we be from every goddamn place. So yeah, feel free to hit me up too as a resource. I do want to say also while we here and are talking about cause and effect lineages and traditions that I strongly believe people misuse the idea of cause and effect all the fucking time. 
everything happens for a reason, people say, but people misapply it and make it seem like just because everything does that you have to forgive somehow or let it be or accept whatever is happening really passively. And that's not true. They use it in a way that shames people who really don't need it when bad things happen to them. And now, like the deeper you get into spiritual work, the more likely it is that you will come to know how there really is a spiritual root of everything, everything shit you ain't ever could have imagined to have spiritual foundations. But how it gets talked about is rarely ever spoken about accurately. Yes, everything happens for a reason. Sometimes that reason was a spiritual attack. And unless there's some really intricate reason only you and your spirits know about, you're not supposed to just let it be, right? We are constantly engaging in warfare. Warfare. Cleanse and protect yourself while you're going through it and your lineage because you have to or the patterns will continue, right? The patterns will continue. Energy be following because as we already know, it don't die. It don't die. It can generally only be transferred or transmuted. So yes, everything happens for a reason, but sometimes those reasons are also trade-offs. They might they might be trade-offs that we made with the universe, pacts we've made with entities and other spirits and other lives or in the spiritual realm, energy that is following us. Um, or when we were younger and we come here or grow older, it takes us a long time to find out about it in the conscious mind, you know, if we do it all. Okay, so, you know, go on and say it out loud with me. Repeat after me right now. I'm not playing with you. Don't repeat that, but say it out loud. Just because something happens for a reason don't mean that it's a good one. And anybody who guilts or coerces you into letting some violence happen to you using that concept of cause and effect, they can get these hands. It is possible to acknowledge these ideas of cause and effect and be able to work with both while also developing your own understanding of it and not following into the shame and guilt that sometimes gets promoted in these discussions. It's possible to acknowledge and incorporate these ideas of cause and effect while also acknowledging your right to fight for yourself and disrupt that shit no matter what's happening to you. Next, after this break, we are going to have a story time. And I know you might be like, Dante, ain't this whole thing been a story time already? And the answer is yes and no. So what's coming after the break is actually a specific story, not from my life, but me reciting a story collected firsthand by Black, Oakland-born visual artist, educator, and writer, Michelle E. Lee. Now, if you'll excuse me, to the break we go. What's up, y'all? Make sure y'all are liking the Facebook page, liking the podcast on whichever platforms you're listening to them on, following on Patreon if you can, and sharing with your friends. With Patreon, you should have the option to just pay what you can 
or you can join a tier. There's about four different tiers at this time and people have the option to become a patron for $3, $5, and $10.25 a month. For all of them, you get access to my early updates about my work that I keep off of social media, certain insights, as well as my poetry. But for the $10 tier, you get a message from me and the option of me pulling a tarot or oracle card for you every month. For the $25 tier, you receive a message from me and have the option for me to interpret one to two of your dreams and divine with music and cards for you. Again, this is every month. Follow me on patreon.com slash controversial Tay. You can also find the link on my website. Listeners, I am also allowing room for a new segment of the show. If y'all send in messages and I get to them, there will be an option that we can go over them in an episode. This is an opportunity to ask me questions, whether about myself, my experiences, my jobs, or something else, but also to share your own experiences, rants, thoughts, and opinions, give advice to the rest of the world, etc. It can be related to anything we've already covered in the last few episodes, can be something completely not touched on at all so far you have room you can choose to be anonymous or give a name or i can make one up for you i have fun doing that we'll play it by ear not everything will be brought to the podcast it'll depend on what it is but you will likely get a response regardless all you have to do is email tayinthewaterpodcast at gmail.com and write in the subject line send through the water and that's it And we are back. Real quick, I realize now that though I still do want to expand on this even more in the future and have open conversations with others about this, something that I didn't say about everything happening for a reason is that there are a lot of spiritual roots of those happenings that can be altered or relieved in a certain way, but also not all things are meant to be reversed or altered, or not all things should be, perhaps for your own benefit. I was just thinking again of the trade-offs that I had mentioned before. I want to be clear that not all things need a cure, if you will. It also just really depends on whatever it is you're going through. You know, everybody's shit is different. Like, I'm thinking about my joint pains that can get a bit extreme at times. You know, they do get on my nerves. And there are times when I get stubborn and caught back up in thinking not how my spirits, especially my ancestors, want me to think, right? Like without proper analysis that matches their indigenous and diasporic values and viewpoints. There's times where, when it can be uh, easy or tempting for me even to revert back into the type of mindset that we're socialized to have um, like over and over again um, that requires distance from and delegitimization of indigenous medical and spiritual systems. And navigating ableism and working to understand my people's old ways and technologies and Also, white witch and white mystic nonsense is still something, you know, like I personally am working through and I acknowledge that. Um, And I, you know, I try to be open about that. But with that being said, like when I get into that mindset, that mindset that's like compromised by whiteness that, you know, forces us to separate ourselves from um, indigenous values, I forget to interrogate 
why my pain is flaring at that moment when my physical body felt fine otherwise and taken care of. Because normally, depending on where the pain is on my body, uh, it's due to a certain susceptibility that came, me accidentally accidentally leaving myself spiritually vulnerable in some way sometimes it's just a spirit or not just a spirit but sometimes it's a spirit or it may be due to me being inflexible in a certain situation and it's affecting me spiritually and physically or sometimes it's also a warning about something that's about to go down etc and you know sometimes it's really difficult for me to understand why it happened at all sometimes I never find out and when I forget to interrogate why though it just uh, intensifies or it comes back later. And this may not be something you relate to, or maybe it is, you know, regardless, it's okay. I just wanted to give this as an example because this is one example of the idea of a trade-off. Like this is an example of a trade-off that I made specifically in the spiritual world that affects me in this lifetime. Now, is it annoying as hell, even though it helps me sometimes since I'm receiving information and data through pain that I didn't necessarily ask for? Yes, for sure. Would I find a way to reverse it or alter it somehow to make it less of a thing or not a thing at all? No, not for real, because it's something that I feel it's not something that I feel needs to be cured. And I I accept it as a trade off, especially knowing that I did agree to this, just not in this lifetime. And I know that I have, I know that I have the autonomy to explore and make that decision for myself, right? And at the end of the day, while we share our, while we each share our experiences with other happenings, um, like with our different happenings, you know, that we are investigating, we can also be supportive of people's agency, um, people's thought processes, you know, which includes being supportive. This this includes being supportive. I can't talk right now, which includes being supportive of like other people's yeses and their no's and their I don't know's, especially when we are not at all supported by colonial white society. If we do choose to embrace or spiritually investigate um, the realities that we're facing. So I wanted to say that and um, as stated before, moving on, right, as stated before, Michelle E. Lee is a black Oakland born visual artist. She's an educator and a writer, and she is the author of Working the Roots, over 400 years of traditional African-American healing. She describes it, this book, as the culmination of a collection of firsthand interviews, conversations, and apprenticeships that she experienced with over 20 traditional healers, mainly in the southern region of the United States. This book is not only full of collections of our ancestors' medical knowledge, but also info on the spirit work that they engaged in that often went hand-in-hand hand with the other medicine, and it's full of recipes for us and by us. If you don't have this book and you a Negro like me, then you need to get it, period. Michelle E. Lee, she went hard as hell, let me tell y'all. She went hard as hell when she wrote and published this book. Work in the Roots became a Bible to me. She spent... 20 years collecting and perfecting this book. She said, she was like, you know, I only thought it was going to take like four or five years, but it took her 20 years to collect and perfect this book. She was so uh, considerate of every detail, everything, every single thing that went into this book. So, you know, pay her all the respect. Okay. 
I first was introduced to this book by Karen Culpepper from the former group known as Oxalis Collective when I was in DC. They also had a podcast named Tonic Podcast for those of y'all interested in herbalism and like um, I like to call t- uh, Tonic like a more gentle podcast because it just be they voices be so soothing to listen to. I'll be like, wow, y'all go off. So cute. Um, but yeah, Oxalis Collective they uh she was a part of that um now the group doesn't exist anymore but she still does like some really badass work so sharing this with her permission i i remember how she discussed that as soon as she started reading the book her dreams were essentially being packed with so much detail and vividness because her ancestors was taking her on all these trips because they were so excited. They were so excited, y'all. And they they were wanting to show her everything in conjunction with what she was reading. And, you know, it, she mentioned, she even mentioned having to take a break from from the book because it was so powerful and also a lot. But she was speaking very highly of it. And it's like, once your spirits know you know certain things, they can use those as openings to access you better. For example, with my friends and uh, my, with my friends, my spirits tend to communicate a lot with my body and it often intensifies when I'm with others who also do spiritual work, um, like on a daily basis or those who are powerful and not yet doing spiritual work often, but need to be. And like our spirits will often use certain happenings and sounds with my body to speak, but then also those same happenings might happen for them too, those friends, which can be confusing for them at first if they're not used to that shit, but it's usually their spirits trying to get them to pay attention in the moments where it's easiest for them too, because I'm around and like they see it in me. Um, and so like they're, they have like this awareness that they, that normally might be like, like downed a little bit more, like when I'm not around and you know, our ancestors are smart and they want you to be too. As I always say, you know, please be receptive to them because they have so much knowledge for you. They have, you know, they're not trying to, you know, cross your boundaries and shit like that most of the time. Like, (laughs) like if they love and support you, like they want the best for you and they're just trying to get you to, you know, be the best you that you can be because like they have an obligation to be protecting you and protecting, uh, the lineage. So be receptive to them, specifically those who serve and protect you. And this also happens during my energy healing divination sessions too. And that's why I tell all my clients beforehand to try to be open to it in case it happens. Um, like any any bodily functions that might come about or um, any things that might just seem sudden, you know. And I also ask like if, if you can, you know, try not to attach any shame to it if it comes up suddenly, you know. Because some people do because they're not used to it. And they're like, oh my God, why am I... Get, you know, doing these loud ass burps during the session. Oh my God, that's rude. Like I'm making this noise. Girl, it's okay. It's your spirits. It's fine. Um, but you know, I tell them either way that we'll take care of them just fine. So, all right. This particular narrative that I'm about to read is called the book of Joe Hayes, the divining of a Wattestick man. There is a trigger warning. Uh, some mentions of the death of a loved one, that come up throughout this there's no like intense descriptors of that but I do want to mention that there's mentions of it um and so if you're okay with proceeding then here we go everyone in Scotland County knew Joe Hayes truck it was easy to spot people could be driving walking working in the field or just sitting on their porch and when they saw his truck go by 
they point and say, there go Joe Hayes. Or they shout at him, hey, Joe. Or simply call out his name, Joe Hayes, and wave their hand. And he give a honk back with his horn. If you were looking for Joe Hayes and couldn't find him, all you had to do was drive to any one of the small towns in Scotland County, ask anyone, and then follow the leads. You seen Joe Hayes? He been here about an hour ago. He's out there near Hamlet. Seen him drive towards Gibson a while ago. Or, he was here early to get a sausage sandwich, then took off. Said he had to drill a hole in Wagram. Should be here later on. You can go on up there and ask for yourself. Joe Hayes had the, reput had the reputation of being a good cook before his wife and childhood sweetheart died from complications, delivering the last of their three children whom he raised afterwards with help from members of his family. He hunted and grew vegetables to feed his family and worked at a local factory job. He was a good and disciplined provider, even though he did always refer to his work at the factory as doing time, as if he was in jail. He took regular swigs of cod, cod liver oil, which he always kept in his jacket's pocket, and sips of root medicine for his health maintenance. But the tragedy of his wife's death almost sent Joe Hayes over the edge. He stopped cooking and instead ate daily at the Greasy Spoon just two miles down the road. He started drinking more wild turkey whiskey than water. And when he wasn't working, he spent most of his time in the woods and told folks he was just going hunting. He'd leave before sundown to stake out a spot in the only environment where he felt comfortable along with his shotgun, wild turkey. A pocket full of jerky and his two nameless hunting dogs he called Sooners because they would rather sleep on the porch than hunt. He'd return by sunup and night's end with no kill, empty-handed, except for the things he left with. Folks say he really went to the woods to scream bellow, cry, and damn the world for his loss, hoping to get some reprieve from his impenetrable heartache. But only Joe Hayes knew why he was there. I was hunting for direction, forgiveness, peace of heart. I also didn't care if I became the hunted, he said. After his wife's death, Joe Hayes felt he was being punished for all the daddy deer, brother squirrel, mother coon, cousin rabbit, Sister Possum, Auntie Turtle, Uncle Bird, Grandma Snake, and even the roadkill life he had taken since he was a boy. He'd say, life killed my wife and I will never kill life again. It was bound to happen because energy finds energy. What he meant was that because he had hunted and taken the life of many animals who came from families themselves, the life of one of the dearest of his own family members had been taken from him. It had been an exchange of energy. Energy finds energy, he said. These were Joe Hayes' prophetic words that changed his life. His downward spiral escalated when Joe Hayes and the Scotland County Volunteer Fire Department wrestled a fire half the night trying to save the house in paradise where Miss Ola B. lived and operated her two businesses. By day, her house was a store where barefoot children bought three sugar cookies for a penny, and by night, it became the local juke joint. The fire at Miss Olabee's house was particularly close to Joe Hayes' heart since after his wife's death, he began spending many of his evenings there. The morning following the fire that ate Miss Lula B's house store juke joint 
was the morning that Joe Hayes took the first step towards his new life. One frigid morning at the start of the hunting season, I didn't go to work, he told me. I had been up half the night wrestling a fire at Ola B's house and certainly didn't want to do my time at the factory. I was sick and tired of doing work fit for a monkey that called for no brains and was repetitive. I needed the outdoors. I said I was going to call in sick. It was 6 a.m. I took a swig of liquor to give me the courage to make the call. I took another swig after the call to congratulate myself for calling in sick. The third swig I took to cut the bone, cutting chill in my body. The fourth, fifth, and sixth swigs I took to shake my head awake and be ready to go anywhere. I took my last swig of liquor for courage to move forward and out the factory because I wanted to set an example for my children. I grabbed my shotgun, put on my jacket, and headed for the woods. I didn't take my truck and I didn't take my dogs, but I did take my jerky, my flask, and my cigarettes. Joe walked for hours in the day in the woods that day, woods he he knew well because he'd trekked them since childhood. At midday, he stopped below a hunting post in an old oak tree. He climbed up the primitive ladder made out of wood branches to reach the four by four plywood post on top. He sat down, leaned back against the wall and unstrapped the shotgun that, that had done the killing for him for the last 15 years. He carefully laid it to his side and began stroking the barrel. Hunting had been part of Joe Hayes' life and culture for as long as he could remember. He was raised to think of hunting as a necessity, not a sport. Now he questioned the validity of that reasoning. Was it really a necessity? Did his wife really need to die? In the midst of his reflections, Joe Hayes ate jerky, sipped wild turkey for courage, and watched as huntable creatures began to reveal themselves around him more often than they usually did on his hunting trips. Somehow, they knew he was not there to take life, but to regain his own. Time passed. The sun was setting and dampness from the surrounding wetlands rose along with the sound of night's creatures. Joe Hayes dozed off several times, allowing himself to recover from his wild turkey and escape his woes. Finally, after napping for the last time, he climbed down from the hunting post and began gathering food while there was still some light. Grapes, nuts, and edible roots were plentiful for those who knew what to look for. A protruding root at the base of the hunting post oak offered a seat He rested his back on a patch of moss that cushioned part of the trunk, then feasted on his gatherings in the last of the jerky. Darkness hovered in the woods and would soon conceal the things that daylight had revealed. Joe Hayes sat on the tree root and listened as night's sound became louder and bolder with the day's retreat. He stayed there for another hour after nightfall, finished the last of his wild turkey, and then headed back to his one-room home in paradise. As he made his way out, he didn't think of his life's past, present, or future. He strode in the balance of the moment. For most people, it would have been difficult to see in the dark of the woods, but for Joe Hayes, it was easy. He had explored every inch of this area since he was a boy. His people had a long and intimate relationship with those woods and had been buried in his soil for the past 400 years. 
One could easily call Joe Hayes' familiarity second nature and intuitive. He ate what grew there, what lived there, and found protection and solace there. In a way, Joe Hayes and those woods shared the same genetic coding and memory. The woods were himself, and he could not be afraid of himself. He could see in the dark in the woods the same way he could vision himself with the lights off. But this night was different. One hour passed, two, then three. Joe Hayes was still searching for his way out. He thought the wild turkey might have disoriented him, so he took out the cod liver oil from his pocket, swallowed a couple of hefty gulps. It went down slimy, thick and sticky. It stuck in the middle of his throat, and he coughed and he choked and he gagged on it, trying to keep from vomiting. He wished for cold water and an orange or a lemon to chase the oil down. He searched frantically for a nearby creek or pond, but found none. His stomach jerked and hiccuped. His throat swelled. It was coming. He wanted it to come. His torso lunged, lunged forward. Ugh. Outsprayed the slime. He kept alternating between breathing and hacking it up. His stomach was tightening and heaved in, ready for the next expulsion. On the ground lay two jerky grapes, nuts, and roots and an acrid wild turkey and cod liver oil stew. Joe Hayes looked for fresh water to renew his face and to wash out his insides. He was walking in muddy wetlands. Moisture was everywhere, but no open pond or running stream of drinkable water was in reach. He bent down, scooped up the wet mud, and spread it on his face and neck. The coldness felt good and refreshing. The rich smells of the soil held his childhood and every cell and vessel in his body was opened. He nibbled the soil. It tasted good and it brought him to his senses. Joe Hayes found a good spot to rest and muse over his predicament. It was well into the night and the darkness was heightened to its fullest. Joe Hayes surveyed his surroundings, certain he had tread this ground before and missed his cue, his way out. Then, in the far distance, he heard the faint sound of steady and deliberate steps coming his way. The average person wouldn't have heard this, but Joe Hayes had canine hearing, especially at night. Ain't no more bears in these parts, he affirmed out loud for himself, and for who or whatever was fast approaching. He grabbed his shotgun and pointed it in the direction of the on, on the oncoming steps. A dense mass, about half an acre away, emerged out of the dark and headed directly towards him. He squinted his eyes to see it better. He had owl vision, but the figure still looked blurry to him, and he could not make it out. The mass neared quickly, and he knew contact was imminent. Joe Hayes steadied his shotgun and continued to aim, ready to shoot if necessary. But he was not afraid. Not like he'd been when he had to watch his wife die without being able to do anything about it. That was the only time in his life he had ever felt fear. Amidst the chorus of nocturnal sounds, he heard his name sung across the air. Joe Hayes! He didn't answer. The mass moved closer. 
but was still obscured to his eyes. Again, he heard, Joe Hayes. It was now 20 yards from him. Again, Joe Hayes. 10 yards still coming. Joe Hayes. 5. The figure now stood directly across from Joe Hayes and his shotgun barrel. It looked smaller than it had in the distance, and it wore a dark cloak that melted into night's background. Up close, it still looked unformed and dark, especially the face. Only the eyes were clear. They conveyed a visceral connection. Joe Hayes felt kin to this amorphous creature whose gaze pierced his soul. He put his shotgun down and stood before the being with nothing in between. Knight's song carried words to Joe Hayes again. Joe Hayes, I'm gonna give you a gift that will change your life forever. This time, Joe Hayes answered back. And what's that? He questioned with guarded curiosity. He had become cynical about hoping for good things coming out of life after his wife's death. Oh, I think you will want it, replied the figure. But you will have to come with me. It's something I need to show you, not tell you. We won't leave the woods, but we do have to take a little journey. The figure gestured for Joe to follow and spoke one last time. To get your gift, Joe Hayes, follow me. I am Ayami. And suddenly, the figure that was Ayami turned and headed back into the trees from where it had come. Joe Hayes hopped to his feet, struggled to keep pace. He followed the figure called Ayami across creeks and through swamps Joe Hayes had known all his life, but somehow they seemed different now. The majestic oaks, pines, and walnuts were rooted firmer into the ground and reached higher and broader than he remembered. The vegetation was thicker and carried more life. Cricket clans resonated high-pitched mantras and bullfrog songs pulsated loud and plentiful. Rabbits scurried across the path to the nearest underbrush. Owls hooed and the bobwhites shared their love songs. A vision came to Joe Hayes of the storms of his youth, where thunder rain deities invited frogs to hop in yards and dance wildly, and the snakes had a field day, and they ate well. He felt himself flowing through the life veins of the woods from the times of his boyhood that had disappeared as he had become a man. Johe's excitement grew as his night vision became keener. He could even see the top of root medicines as he passed them, root medicines his mother and grandmother used to doctor their family. He hadn't found them in a while, and he thought they were all gone, over-harvested and missing even from these places tucked deep in the woods. After a long while, Ayami stopped far ahead of Joe Hayes. Joe hurried to catch up and stood next to his mysterious guide who gazed straight ahead into the dark of an open clearing in the midst of the woods. Joe did not know this spot. He stared along with Ayami and looked for a form he could identify, anything. All he saw were the dark silhouettes of tall pines that had protected the forest surrounding the open clearing. Joe Hayes and Ayami stood side by side and stared for a while. Just when Joe felt he could not stare no more, two forms melted out of the woods and moved towards them. The figures were shrouded in a darkness that blended into the night. As when Joe Hayes first saw Ayami, he heard no footsteps. They seemed to float through the air and move swiftly. Joe Hayes, we have a gift for you. Joe looked around as these words whispered in his ear. 
coming from the approaching figures. Use this gift well and you will become indispensable to your people. You will never have to work for anyone else and never want for anything. The two figures were now in front of him. Joe turned to Ayami to look for answers, but Ayami was gone. The whisperings continued. There are water ponds that lie deep underground. We will show you how to find them and bring the water up for your people. Knowing how to bring the water up is a mechanical skill, much like working the machines at your factory and will not make you successful. You can learn this anywhere. This gift we give you will open you up to receive all life, especially water, wherever it is. When your wife died, you said energy finds energy. This is true. And the energy you find is also you, and you will know it like you know yourself, your children, your parents, your brothers and sisters, just like you knew your wife, and you will treat it with respect. Water will know this about you and will look for you and claim you. Joe Hayes showed little emotion on the surface, but he was intrigued by what he heard and deep down excited at the possibility of being able to quit the factory and create his own livelihood. He had nothing to lose, and he was ready. He simply said in a matter-of-fact way, I'm ready. What do I need to do? And at that moment, a hand from one of the figures swept across his face and gently closed the lids of his eyes. Just watch, the whisperings instructed. He saw a vision of himself on someone's land, land that was cleared to put a house on. A voice said, find a fruit-bearing tree or vine and break a branch off, about ye big. Joe saw himself walk over to a grapevine and break a branch off. Leave the grapes on and bend the branch so it has an arc. Extend this out in front of you. Make known your intentions to find the best underground pond, and the branch will lead you to the perfect spot. You are doing nothing except being led. Remember, you are only the vessel. In his vision... Joe saw the branch bend to the left and his body pulled in that direction, then a hard right, a hard left again, a few more feet to the right, and then the branch stopped its pull, bent itself down, stiff towards the ground, and stayed pointed there. Joe's entire body bent with it. The voice returned. Now raise the branch up and tap it hard on the ground and count how many times it pops up and down. Joe counted as the branch popped, and popped up and down 40 times. Okay. Dig your well here, the voice said, 40 feet down to get to the water pond. The water you bring up will be the water from the days of your grandmothers and grandfathers. The voice faded and the vision slowly disappeared. Joe Hayes continued to keep his eyes closed to digest the vision. When he finally raised his lids, the figures were gone. He ran across the clearing, into the woods, to catch up with his night prophets, but they had left no trail, nothing, not even a footprint or a scent. At last, realizing his search was futile, Joe Hayes gave up and stopped. It's time to find my way home, he assured himself. Joe Hayes walked out of the woods to the clearing where he had the vision and looked across the way. Night was ending her reign and sunup was near. The open space had changed. It was no longer surrounded by dense woods, and for the first time, he saw McFarland Road, the road that would lead him home to paradise. He realized he was on the other side of the forest from where he entered almost 24 hours ago. Joe Hayes didn't think about how he got there or that just a few minutes ago, the clearing was surrounded by woods. He was just glad he knew the way home.
Out of habit, he patted his side to feel his shotgun. It wasn't there. He realized it hadn't been there since he ventured off with Ayami. Must be resting in the hunting post at the old oak tree, he muttered to himself. He turned to retrieve it, and after a few feet, he stopped. He thought about his wife. He thought about the gift he was just given and water claiming him. Don't need it. Done enough killing to last a lifetime, he declared. Joe Hayes turned around and walked towards the road to paradise with the best hunt trophy he'd ever had. The start of a new life. After his vision quest in the woods, Joe Hayes quit his job and began making a living as a water witch and well digger. His first clients were from the comfort of the black community. Word quickly spread that Joe Hayes could find the best springs and he wasn't going to charge you an arm and a leg to dig your well. Even white folks started calling on Joe Hayes. This usually happened after they had spent a lot of money to have a big company, bring their state-of-the-art equipment to find good water, dig a sound well, and then, for some unknown reason, failed. Good water was water that came up clear with no sand residue, and a good well was one that did not have to be abandoned after a few years. Joe Hayes would show up with his rudimentary materials, a pickaxe, shovel, manual drill, and a branch from a fruit-bearing tree, which would lead him to the spot. That was all he needed. For the next 32 years, Joe Hayes was self-employed and earned a sound a reputation as the water stick man. Now let's end it with this. Now I'll leave more up to the people doing more of this work in particular, but one thing I do know is that finding good sources of water is going to become more and more important as this current world comes into death. Start taking into consideration what's going to happen with the water that you currently have access to as climate change continues escalating, because it is. It's going to continue, and it's going to continue escalating. Trust these people who have callings to work with water and find water. Trust them. Trust these traditions. Trust your local water stick people. Shoot, you might be a water stick people, okay? And trust your people too. Now, these last few words are also from Michelle E. Lee. In 2001, the government required all water witches and well diggers to prove that they were qualified. This meant passing a test filled with mathematical equations and questions on geology and hydrology. 32 years of experience and validated by the stroke of a pen. One can still practice without a license, but those caught are fined heavily. Governments pass laws to contain people they fear and maintain control and power. But the traditions of a people and the gifts from their people can never be contained or destroyed. Traditions are the life breath of the people. It is how we have survived and it is why we have survived. Amen. Assalamu alaikum, y'all. Some of y'all might be interested in energy healing work, specifically in-person or long-distance Reiki, that helps to restore better health and balance to all of your physical, emotional, and spiritual bodies, and also being able to connect with your spirits and get messages from them too. If you're feeling called to it, go to my website at tayloramarilittle.com and you can book me there. If you need tarot divination, I primarily do four different styles. You can go to my website. 
or if you might be interested in my building with the ancestors one-on-one guide for black people and the articles i've written or inviting me to speak at more conferences or to do any of my workshops you already know what to do just visit my website which is tayloramarilittle.com amari is a-m-a-r-i supporting me through patreon is also something that i am returning to so if you want to financially support me and help me sustain the work that i'm doing even if it's only donating a few dollars a month you can do so at patreon.com slash controversial tay If you don't know how to spell controversial, you can look that shit up. It's okay. You can also follow me on Instagram at Controversial Tay, Miss Tay Amari on Twitter, and you can pay me or tell your white friends too, as you should. My Venmo, Cash App, and PayPal are all on my website. You cannot miss it. My name is Taylor Amari Little. Thank you for listening, y'all, and have a black-ass day.